debate Australia needs to have. Should we increase superannuation contributions or leave them on hold? One of the big conversations Australia has to have, and it has to have it very, very quickly, is about what level of superannuation contributions we are comfortable with. Now, under a bipartisan agreement between both major political parties in Australia, From July next year, contributions are going to continue to increase from the current 9.5% of your salary. They're going to rise out to 12%. So it's going to go over one year, 9.5% to 10%, to 10.5%, to 11, 11 11.5%, and 12% eventually. Now, this has been the ambition and the dream, if you like, of the political parties and indeed of the superannuation industry itself to try and get it out to a point at which people become, well, not completely self-sufficient, but on the way to being self-sufficient in their superannuation. I can always remember hearing that if you wanted to be self-sufficient from the day you started work until the day you finished, you need to put aside at least 15% of your pay as savings. But of course, there are other priorities in people's lives. There are houses, there are kids, there are school fees. There's a range of things that can really impact a person's ability to save enough for their retirement. And then you throw in there the coronavirus, unemployment, periods out of the workplace. Women having kids, of course, have a significant disadvantage as compared with their male counterparts who may work straight through. So all of these things wrap up into the argument as to how much superannuation is enough. And especially at a time when, number one, the amount of wages and the amount of jobs going around is not going to be great over the next few years anyway as a result of coronavirus. Are we really in a position to be able to say to employers, increase the amount you put aside for your employees' superannuation from 10 to 12% of their wages? It's going to be interesting to see what attitude the employers have and indeed the workers as well. So I thought what I would do here is bring in somebody I always go to when it comes to superannuation policy because he's helped to, to write a lot of it in Australia over a very long period of time. And that is Michael Rice, who was the executive director and founder of Rice Warner. And he's led submissions to the government on, you know, sort of all sorts of reviews, the Henry Tax Review, the Cooper Superannuation Review, the Financial System Inquiry, and has made submissions to Treasury, Senate Committees, and the Productivity Commission. He joins me now. Michael, always great to have a chat. Hi, Ross. How are things? Good, thank you. This is really, at the moment, one of the big sleeping arguments that Australia has got to have as to what level of contributions to superannuation are we comfortable in putting aside without necessarily hurting either the employer who may give less in pay rises in the future or B, the job prospects of people who may be kept out of the workforce simply because the wages bill, including superannuation, has seemed to be too high. That's right. Now, it might be worth going back to why we have a super system at all. The, you know, we could be like New Zealand used to be and just give everybody an old age pension and let people save themselves if they want to. But experience shows you that in other countries, voluntary savings is only taken up by the wealthy. And a lot of people really just rely on government support. So when Keating introduced the first 3% super in the mid 80s with the trade unions at the time, it was all about helping people save more. 
the, the objective is that when they get to retirement, if they've had a lifetime of continuous work, they'll, they'll probably be, be self-sufficient at least for the first 10 or 12 years of retirement, then drop to a part pension and then perhaps a full pension later in life if they live a long time. Whereas in the old days, people would go straight on to an age pension and have nothing else. So the objective is that people will actually have more in retirement through this system. The problem is, of course, people are really paying for it themselves. And if the more you pay in super, the less you're going to get in wages. It's not a 100% trade-off. Uh, because some employers will be more generous than others. And of course, some people can negotiate and take home pay is one of the things they're always conscious of. But um, I think we, we're in a different position now to what we were when this 3% originally in 92 went to 9% over 10 years, because in the 90s, people still got we, real wage rises. So the super was seen as additive to their pay course in an environment where people are getting very little, if any, wage rise. So if they get a super increase today, they may actually uh, not get any pay rise for a couple of years, even though their costs will certainly rise in that time. Okay, again, let's go back to the start, because you and I were both there when compulsory superannuation was introduced. So we know some of the arguments that took place then, because the arguments then and then transplanted to the arguments today, are well worth having. To my opinion, at least anyway, um, compulsory superannuation was also a way of government defraying the risk of the ageing of our population. In other words, as the baby boomers went through, they didn't have enough savings. If you could suddenly have compulsory superannuation, then government basically didn't take the complete risk of having to, as you've pointed out, have everybody in an age pension. Then, as you could also say, there were generous employers out there that had employer-based schemes, but the issue was then that they wanted to get out of those schemes, and so therefore by saying, well, okay, you the individual, look after yourself, because remember, we were always told this is your ability to look after yourself. This is your money. You've got to look after this. You've got to be responsible. And so really it was all about both the government and the employer going back to the individual and saying, it's your money. You look after it, and and there's this system of superannuation that's been set up to allow you to do so. And so this was the whole thing. Uh, And yet it always seems, to me at least, quite kind of curious that in many ways the superannuation industry and parts of government always seem to presume as though it's not the individual's money, that they can really, you know, sort of do with it what they want, almost at whim, because it is, of course, heavily tax-subsidised as the incentive for people to save. It is, but the, the system here is actually, it's regarded as one of the best in the world. And a couple of reasons for that. One is that the funds themselves, over 30 years, those big industry funds, and I know you were a trustee of one once, they've earned 5% real. And that's, that's unheard of. It's, it's not happened in any other country. And for it to happen for so long, it's meant that the savings that people have got are a lot bigger than that were first expected. And of course, that does take pressure off the age pension because uh, it's means tested and the more money that people have, the less the government has to fork out. The other thing it's done is it's built huge capital markets in Australia so that we're now a net exporter of capital, which is you know unheard of in our history. So that our super funds are now making investments overseas, bigger than people overseas coming into Australia. And that gives us a lot more economic security. But the, I think the real issue is, uh, at the moment, is should we slow down 
the growth of these increases, recognising the economic circumstances we face. And that's and the it, argument, because if you look at, say, the Grattan Institute, what it has said in the past is that if you do increase the contributions from 10 uh, to 12% eventually, uh, what you will do is you'll end up seeing that the middle class will end up probably worse off because they won't be getting pay rises. Those at the, 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 the upper end, the wealthy people, and those at the lower end, the, the, the really less well-off, um, are probably going to end up better off, largely because those people who are poorer anyway are most likely going to go straight on to a full or part age pension when they're in their retirement years anyway. That's right. Now, my, my personal view is that the more that the SG is, the more people will get the benefit of the compound interest and the real savings. But it's a question of timing and affordability. So one, one thing I've thought about is if the government is going to force people to put more in super, why don't they bring it in at the same time as a personal income tax cut so that people's take-home pay is not affected as much? And you're because, right, because, you know, let's say, for example, in these times when people may not have the level of work, I mean, we're talking about the unemployment rate going to 10%. Now, a person who's, you know, unemployed clearly is not going to be putting money into their super fund, but then what you've got is other people in the community who are going to be eventually forced to pay higher taxes because of the debts the government's taken on, and also to, to make certain eventually, hopefully, that uh, people can get back in the workforce and get employed because in the meantime... They're going to have to be subsidised by government and therefore by existing taxpayers anyway. This is why I sort of get a little like you, I guess, worried about the timing of increasing the superannuation guarantee contribution to that 12% mark. Yes, it would be better to say that it's our policy and we won't change the policy. But we're going to defer it because other things are more important at the moment rather than throw it out and say we're not going to increase it at all. So if the superannuation guarantee charges increase to that uh, 12% mark, does the government, does it forego revenue? Because surely if the people earned the money as wages and paid tax on that money, they would actually pay a larger amount of tax than if the money is in superannuation, where the tax on superannuation funds and contributions is less than what it is on the wages that people earn. So to a certain extent, the government would almost be shooting itself in the foot financially, if they were to raise the contribution to 12% anyway? It's, well, that's true in the short term and the forward estimates. But if you bring people off the age pension in future, then the trade-off is that there's a saving down the track for what you forego today. For example, if everybody who was retired today got a full age pension, the additional costs to government would probably be at between 30 and $35 billion a year. So past savings have saved the money pension costs today. And we would hope that getting everybody up to higher levels of savings in future will do that too. Uh, I was reading the other day something ASPA brought out, the, the Association for Super Funds, that the cost of tax concessions, both on contributions and on uh, lower tax on earnings within the funds, together with the age pension costs, are all about 5.1% of GDP. Now, in other countries, that cost is often 10 to 15%. So we're actually very lucky. Part of it's because we've got a relatively young country. You know, migrants coming in have tended to keep our average age of population down. But also the fact that we've got these huge savings, which means that people are not dependent on the government uh, as much as they are in other regions. 
Just one thing I've sometimes wondered and thought about, and that is if the contribution is increased as as planned to that 12%, and it gets there by July 2026, I think it is, then what happens, in my mind at least anyway, is the person who benefits from that is a person who is entering the workforce or, or who has entered the workforce probably in the last eight to 10 years. The person that superannuation was designed for, which is the older worker, they're largely now leaving the workforce. They're turning 60, 65, and so they're leaving the workforce in, in large numbers. Now, to my mind, at least, a, a second argument about not raising the contribution at this point is the people, you know, the rump of the ageing of Australia's population were the baby boomers and the Gen Ys. Now, they largely are starting to go through the system now And so for the younger worker coming through, surely, in my mind at least anyway, you would want to try and take as much, well, wage and tax pressure off that younger person because there's not as many younger workers these days to support those people who are aged and in retirement. It's true. I think about half the baby boomers have already retired. The um, Well, the other thing is you could have a differential SG that varied by age if you wanted to. You could increase taxes in super funds, for example, on pensions, which are tax-free at the moment on their earnings. So I think there are ways that you could put a package together. The important thing, though, is to recognise that if the system is a good one and getting to 12 is a good idea eventually, rather than change the policy, perhaps just have deferment. Remember, we've already had some deferment after the GFC. The coalition government um, deferred because we should have been in by 12% by now. But um, it was frozen for a long time. And in fact, since 2002 to today, so 18 years, we've only gone up half a percent. So um, in a way, we've fallen a bit behind the timetable. So, okay, so now you are well tapped into all of this. What's your gut feel politically? That the government is already making noises about trying to freeze it and some suggesting that we'll go up by a half a percent to 10% and then be frozen. What's your own feeling as to what politically might happen uh, and what is the solution do you think that the government's going to end up coming down with? Well, I've I've heard the Assistant Minister say that 10% is a round number, good round number. We've heard a lot of backbenchers say that they think that enough is enough, but there are more important things to spend our money on at the moment. Uh, my view is that the government, well, firstly, there's a retirement income review, which the Treasurer has, and which he's reading, and which will probably form some of his uh, policy coming into the budget in October. I would think that the government could do one of two things. They could freeze it and say, we're deferring it for two or three years because these are difficult times. Or they might say there's a half percent coming in next July, we'll let it round to 10, then we'll go to the election and we'll ask people what they want. Do you want wages or more? Um, I'll tell you what, Michael, it will be interesting just to watch exactly how the politics play out, but then also how the argument going through the community is also going to play out because there's a conversation that genuinely needs to be had. Now, you and I have had it today. It's an interesting one. I've got a sense, a little like you, that it's going to get frozen at that 10% mark. I just think your, your suggestion about the other priorities at the moment, I think, might be where ultimately uh, the conversation with government comes down. But uh, if we go to an election... 
That certainly will be one of those key points that people will have conversations about then. Um, so Michael Rice, Executive Director of Rice uh, of Rice Warner, uh, Independent Actuaries, and also one of the founders of that organisation. It's always great to have you on the podcast, Michael, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you, Ross. See you soon. Here's what else is happening. Shares in vaccine maker CSL jumped 6% after it reported a $2 billion profit and the government said it's set to manufacture a coronavirus vaccine when it's developed. The leading candidate is Oxford University AstraZeneca's trial, though others are also being targeted. ANZ said it will pay a dividend of $0.25 a share for the half year. That boosted its share price after Westpac yesterday said there will be no such dividend. And shares in logistics software company WiseTech jumped as much as 35% as it announced revenues up 23% in the past year to $429 million. Treasury Wine Estate shares fell another 8.5% on China's anti-dumping investigation into the Australian wine industry. And Crown Entertainment said profits fell 80% in the past year after venues were forced to close. And that's it for the Money Minutes for today. Your feedback, of course, is always welcome. Good, bad or indifferent. And of course, your views on whether the superannuation contribution should be raised to 12% or not. In the meantime, I'm Ross Greenwood and these are the Money Minutes. Money Minutes.